In this week's episode, Lee Griffin strives for professionalism. To me, it seems useless, but I don't have a law degree, so maybe there's some case. Maybe there's some case where that D would be pertinent, but who knows? The D is always pertinent. You need a Scott. Scott would have. <laughs> Scott would have taken. Would have swung at that softball you just popped up there. I'm not, I'm not going to take the swing. All right, I'm going to. Okay, all I'm gonna, right. I'm going to keep okay. the bat up in the air and wait for the next one. You know, I'm letting keep the I'm bat up in that, the air, huh? You're not going to swing. I'm letting that one just go straight to the catcher. Um, okay. Uh, There's a lot of innuendos. Yeah, There's no, no. So many I, I, as soon as I said it, I knew that was lobbing another softball to you, and <laughs> just, I'm hoping it misses. Oh, misses man. the hole. Whole first home base. Um, <laughs> anyway, Scott Boris gives some savings tips to us all before he leaves the show completely. You can probably just, find like a, a Chinese knockoff sectional on Wish for like three dollars. Imagine. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's possible. Oh, God. But we'll put it in the show notes if you can find some deals, Scott. And I get into the scholarly discussion of alcohol and its effects on task management. Um, we're going to start off with C. Uh, we may or may not have covered this already. We don't remember. Uh, as I said, <laughs> due to the adult beverages. <laughs> this week we are covering FAR. 91.503 flying equipment and operating information. And this is in subpart F, subpart Foxtrot of the FARs, which is large and turbine powered multi engine airplanes and fractional ownership program aircraft. Uh, we brought this up because it's, it's a lot of good content, a lot of good conversation starter. A uh, vast majority of it applies to uh, smaller airplanes. Uh, the very few of this would not pertain to um, flying, learning how to fly. Um, just so, just keep that in mind as we go through it. But it, 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 from a legal standpoint, this is this is for the bigger bigger aircraft. Um, part A: The pilot in command of an aircraft shall ensure that the following flying equipment and aeronautical charts and data, in current and appropriate form, are accessible for each flight at the pilot station of the airplane. So pilot station of the airplane, that's basically the, the cockpit, right? Like that's, you can grab it from your seat. Is Yeah. Okay. Uh, this, we're going right off. One of five, we're going to start here. One, a flashlight having at least two size D cells or the equivalent that is in good working order. You need D cell flashlight? Even during the day, or is, is this a night thing? Or this is always this is this is one of the. I was always told just have a flashlight at night. Well, this is technically for oh. for large and turbine powered multi engine airplanes and fractional ownership okay. aircraft. Technically, okay, so I guess that wouldn't apply so this, to me. Yeah, anyway. this this one definitely is nowhere in the um the smaller plane regs. But I, I just I don't understand why they're specifying the battery, the battery amounts. Back in the day, I guess that was their way of correlating how much power it had. I guess, yeah, you know, I now guess. we look so much at, with LED, you're looking at lumens, you know, back then. Right. You know, think uh, of the root when they when this came into effect. Yeah, you know, they didn't have any 60s, LEDs. 70s. They didn't have LEDs right. or uh, lithium 
battery. So, so equivalent right? can be- now you got rechargeable flashlights with LEDs and lithiums. You don't, and that's what we ha- and most of the airplane, most of the transport category airplanes that I've been flying, which pretty much mean what they're talking about. It's large turbine power. Typically, that is a transport category. Not always. All the CJ series. CJ1, CJ2, CJ3 sets the citation jets. Those are all part 23. So they're, you know, kind of, they're, if they're single pilot certified, they're not transport category. If that, if that's a good delineation for people, but all the transport category stuff that I have flown, which is similar to what they're talking about here, they're on a, like a charging base. So you're not even really worried about this D cell stuff anymore. They're hard installed in the airplane and they're constantly being charged. Or LED and all that stuff. So it's it's you know the, they're just basically giving you the the base you know here, which back when this was written you know would would suffice, you know. But now everything's pretty much built in and charged all the time. So where in the cockpit is that located then? Um, you know, like in the CRJ is like right behind the uh, captain's seat. Um, there may even be two, but it's been, you know, long enough now that I don't even remember. But yeah, there's one for sure behind the captain's seat. There m- might be two, but, um, in other airplanes, yeah, we've had, we've had to go by the, uh, the, just the diesel, like the mag light, you know, the like 18 inch mag light or whatever. Um, yeah, those hold four. Yeah. 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 I guess an 18 inch one. Yeah. Probably or whatever, 12 inch, whatever it is holds four of them. But yeah, they're, I mean, they're big. And so they're here. They're only asking for two size diesel or equivalent. So, um, when it says equivalent, if you have a light that can last as long as D, like multiple D cells and be as or brighter than it, like because I have the I have the Surefire Aviator, just highly recommend. Look this up online. It's it's incredible. Do you know any stats it's, on it by chance? Any rough uh, guess on? Does it have a uh, D cell equivalent battery? It's What's the name of it? To, a surefire uh-huh. aviator. Let's uh, let's get some stats in this bad boy while we're. Uh, I have a. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when you're doing a, um, when you're doing, I mean, most GA guys. So like the, if you're just learning to fly, you're getting into your night flying. That's when you're going to start really thinking about the the flashlights, um, as being part of your not only just your emergency equipment. That's the way they're looking at it here, in this ninety one five zero three. They are looking at it like it's emergency equipment because realistically, you're not. There's enough lighting in the flight deck. There's map lights wherever you're, and, and everything. Now you're using an iPad for charts, so you don't need to like shine a flashlight on anything, like an approach plate, like a paper approach plate, like you, all all of us learned with. You use so iPad. You guys use iPad yeah. for charts. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody uh, use paper anymore? I'm sure. There is probably someone somewhere, but I wouldn't know what any of them were off the top of my head. Um, I'm sure the FA is probably pushing for people to transition at this point because that is more more commonplace now than the old paper. Um, I mean, just the the weight reduction, the workload for the flight crew, all that stuff. You know, it just yeah, it just doesn't make sense not to. But um, so now iPad, of course, has its own internal light. You don't need the flashlight for that. And the iPad probably has a flashlight. App, which all um, it does it probably is, does. All it does is turn on the flashlight, plenty. The flash part of the camera permanently on. Yeah, so it's just I always fly thing. with a camera. I always, I, not camera. I always fly with a flashlight. It's my iPhone eight <laughs> that I carry. 
works just fine. So I got the stats. Um, this I got them up too. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a red, and I have I have the white and red. You can get different colors to swap back and forth. Which is the way you should do it. Don't do we all three agree on that? Get the red and white. the white. You use red at night, right? Yes. Well, you can get amber, uh, blue, or yellow. No, nobody um, cares. Get red and white at the minimum, don't yeah, you think? That's what I have. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're doing, um, you get the uh, yellow green if you're doing if you're running night vision stuff. Like if like some helicopters have night vision goggles yeah. and everything, they're yeah, set up yeah. for that. Or then military, do, or military guys. Yeah, then you do the yellow green. But if you're not in that situation, the the red and the white, um, high high white outputs, 250 lumens, which is pretty phenomenal yeah for a flashlight the size of like two thumbs yeah um so i i feel yeah. like that yeah look right and last you know on high it lasts an hour and a half if you're on the low mode it lasts 20 and a half hours and so low is only five lumens though so think of the difference there 250 lumens down to five lumens but in it's going to give you the runtime in an emergency situation. That's a whole day on. What, I, what unless, kind of I'm out, unless I'm outside shining it on stuff, like trying what to illuminate a big battery. area, I have it on the low mm-hmm. one. Just the high one, if you're trying to like shine it on something to read, it's just too much. It's like blinding. Well, that's what red is for. The red too. But the red is a low and a high as well. And it's the same thing. You yeah. run, I run low red if I'm trying to read something. It'll run 20 hours. What, what kind of batteries in it? Uh, one one two three a yeah is it, i mean is included. it lithium or is it like lithium a, yeah yeah uh, yeah i would imagine is it recharging no i assume it used no? to be used, used to it, a special order them but they sell the surefire uh one two three a's in like 10 20 packs at like home depot and lowe's now yeah it's oh really really common now well here's a box of 12 of them right here for 25 yeah. bucks see i wouldn't i would i think rechargeable is the way to go I mean, yeah. why just throw this stuff away? I in my opinion, yeah. I like being wasteful. Well, once I and once the, I run out of batteries, might as well just throw the thing away. If you if you have a, <laughs> <laughs> so who's more wasteful in this situation? Well, I'm just saying, I t- you just got one up, Rob. I won't. I won't Scott, buy battery away. Scott, I, I won't the, buy anything that's not rechargeable anymore. Well, Scott, look up the price of the the Surefire Aviator. You won't be throwing it away once you run out of batteries. <laughs> Well, I probably, I won't be I won't be buying it to begin with, but <laughs> really. Um, anywho, so yeah, that's I feel like that's almost irrelevant. I I doubt you're ever going to be in a situation where like this is not D cell equivalent as long as it's a good flashlight. Yeah. No. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I'm there's so much here that that I would just want to address. So this one you're talking about is four inches long and it's an inch in diameter. So we're talking like you said, two thumbs. It's a small flashlight able to produce that back when this was written they could they couldn't imagine that type of between the lithium battery and the led you know light they couldn't they they couldn't you know assume that this was ever going to be feasible to be in that small of a package you know but in there so they're talking they're talking about it as like emergency equipment use like i was saying here you know for like a, a student pilot learning to fly or a ga guy this is not really just emergency equipment. Yeah, it's nice to have an emergency, but this is like I'm doing my pre-flight out on the ramp, you know, a, a darker ramp, or I'm doing just a thorough pre-flight on a well-lit ramp, you know, whatever, checking brakes, checking tires, whatever, you know, and having the red and white like you talked about, that is huge because 
how long, you know, before um, a night flight, do you want to kind of be um, protecting yourself from bright white light? Do you guys happen to know like a guideline? It's like a half an hour. It is. Yeah. Yeah. One you half, want, you want to have those. What's up? What What is it? The white light messes with what? The rods. Your The rods in your eyeball. Once yeah. it's exposed to white light, it sets your so eye up for like daylight, not nighttime. Does that distort your depth perception or what? Well, just, well, I, I would imagine you, because it just makes you, just gives you less visibility, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. How what you you I mean, think, yeah. I mean, think, you know, as you're adjo- your eyes adjust yeah. in your bedroom. I night. guess if you're in like a, a bright room and you walk out and it's nighttime, you can't see, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. You want to, I mean, 30 minutes, I guess, to be fully adjusted, yeah. I guess, but you get most of it after like a few minutes though. You'll oh, get, but, yeah. But yeah, oh, yeah. You got to, you do notice even more if you are in darkness for, for that full half hour period. Well, and that, and so they say, you know, if you're going to go fly through a thunderstorm, you know, have one eye close, you don't completely lose your night vision, all kinds of stuff like that. But that's just the point. But I'm just saying this, yeah, this sounds crazy. And the fact that they are being so specific at the D cells or now, well, you should just say D cells. It's been, I mean, I don't know when they came in with the equivalent, but it was not that long ago, which is the surprising part. You'd think if they were updating the law going through the process to reword it to make that exception they would just change it into something useful like lumens and like x amount of runtime right maybe they wanted more latitude because you can interpret what do you want it's like that new duracell commercial you know what do you want more power or more life you know what i mean yeah and that's the same thing here what do you want so if i'm doing a pre-flight and some of the airplanes have flown you know you got to shine that light up there really far when you're doing a post-flight walk around or a pre-flight walk, pre-flight walk around. So, I mean, that thing, like, you're, yeah, that might be an awesome flashlight, but five lumens, that might not be enough on that low setting like you're talking about. I understand yeah. if you're trying to read something up close, five lumens is probably too much. Yeah. You know, you need that 250 plus. You know, I remember looking back, I remember trying to look for something that had 600 lumens. Yeah. Back when I was an FO trying to do this post-flight walk around at night, I wanted something to be able to see. You know what I mean? Because if you miss something on a post post flight walk around, it's your ass. You're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. You know, yeah, I mean it's not, it's even beyond an honest mistake. You just plain didn't see it. It's nighttime. But you can't miss the fact you hit a bird on takeoff or landing. You need to see those things, you know. Yeah. So that's I started looking at, you know, there were people that did honestly miss them. And they got in a lot of trouble. And I know there are people who've been let go for missing things like that. You know, if it's the last flight of the day, you're walking around with your, you know, maybe not quite D equivalent, and you miss the fact that there's, you know, some cord shown on that tire. It's the last flight of the day. And somebody, and they would have had all night to get that tire replaced. But since you missed it, they didn't notice it till the morning when the next crew showed up. I would and just say somebody. Took it, I'd just say somebody took it out for a joyride. You well, know, somebody stole it, flew it. It wasn't me. It's good stuff. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that one, Scott. Yeah, I, I feel like that. I feel like that get that work. Surefire does make. I just want to drive it home here. Go ahead. I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure that they do. I'm sure. I would imagine most do, and that's the way I would go, especially if you're a flight school, because that's one thing you want to start driving your students towards getting is kind of 
compiling. They're like little flight kit. You know, you're going to, you want certain things in there. You know, they're obviously going to be bringing their own headset. Probably. This is one thing that I don't think you could put too much emphasis on because just like dressing properly in the wintertime to, you don't want, I had a student who used to wear shorts all year round and it's like, dude, yeah. Okay. I understand you're not getting cold, but if it makes you rush just a little bit and you miss something on a pre-flight, that's a safety concern. I feel the same way about the flashlight. If you can, you know, get a flashlight that is a little bit better than the other one and it helps you catch one small thing one time, I don't know. That I mean, that's that's just a little bit of a hot spot, you know, but here they're acting like it's emergency equipment. For the light aircraft operator, I would say it's almost a necessity. Or you know, a lot of people like those headlamps now. You know, same difference. Those are good if you want hands-free. And they on should. a pre-flight, I think you do, don't you? Don't you want hands-free? Instead of putting it in your mouth or whatever? Eh. They should just specify I, I the dollar you think putting it in your mouth is better? I just, I so rarely need both hands. Maybe happens like twice for like 10 seconds. So it's not that big a deal. And I, there's always a corner. Every time I've done it, there's always some place to set it where it's shining where I need it anyway. So, Yeah. I agree. I've, I've never had I've never had the headlamp style, but I mean, I can definitely see, you know, see the advantage of it. And gonna, I'm not flying GA that much, you know. So yeah, I've never had the the. I like the idea of the the light on your head, but you look like a doofus when you're you have that on. You just you just do. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I just don't yeah. know if you can really replace I, the peace of mind. It it shines where you're looking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you look you look stupid, but man, I just I want to catch the cord on that tire. I want to catch that that spot of hydraulic fluid leaking or whatever. I guess you know I'm not talking Cessna 150 anymore. I'm not talking J3 Cub. I'm talking something that's got three hydraulic systems. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know a lot more probability of something going wrong, I suppose, or something that matters going wrong. You can lose brakes in a 150 and go land almost anywhere and still turn off halfway down the runway. You know what yeah, I mean? I There's try no. Not to use them. Yeah, I mean you don't you you Save don't them. have to that yeah. much. You I don't at gross weight you have brakes, 1600 man. pounds to stop. Yeah. There's it doesn't land take that on. much resistance. To no, I land on grass most of the time. Most of the time I don't even use them ever. Yeah, right. Yeah, the grass. I mean, is like sometimes for turning I'd use them. You know, to get it for to turn, but that's about it. Right, but if you found out on taxi out that you didn't have brakes, that's not a super critical thing. You just turn the airplane off, say, "Oh, put well, it back right, in yeah. call maintenance." Yeah, I mean, I if you figured out on landing, out. if you figured out on landing, you tip like you've said. You know, you don't have any trouble getting down. And again, because it's so light and it's so it's designed the way it is, it doesn't use on turnway and landing. So if you're landing anywhere sane. You don't need to really use them on landing. If you do and you find no. out that they they don't work, you still probably have plenty yeah. of runway to just roll to a stop. Yeah. And then you don't roll really rely on them to turn around. No. Pull off the runway and park yeah. in and call maintenance yeah. or do what you do. Just realize you have min- minimal steering ability. Scott, do you use them on the, when you land middle bass? I don't I remember. I haven't landed on middle bass yeah, in does. probably seven years, but I probably did. I don't know. Yeah. You do. I've landed a 150 yeah. on middle bass in like the last two years. I mean, and I did. If if somebody told me 
land on a middle bass and don't use your brakes, I could probably do it. But like, if I'm just landing there casually, I'm going to end up using my brakes. You know, I feel like you'd need a good headwind to pull that off. Headwind, I agree with you. If it was, uh, yeah, talk about calm paper, wind. So it's going to keep rolling, but yes, it's only eighteen hundred feet. Eighteen hundred yeah. feet pavement. Yeah, I think you're using them. Yeah, I mean, I bet I could do it without using them. Uh, okay, if we gave you, you know, maybe two or three warm up landings. Yeah, what, and Scott, what other ways to slow it down? Too, you're not dragging. Do do S turns back and forth across the runway how wide's the runway yes yeah but you have to get slow enough to do that safely well yeah so still still speed dependent but yeah you would definitely have to probably do that yeah but if you got 40, off some 40 degrees of flaps in and you touch down pretty close to the end of the runway 1800 feet but you have to do all of those things well yeah i'm just you saying you have to touch down if, close to the end of the runway if and I'm all that stuff flying into middle bass i'm going to use my brakes but if somebody's like if I'm on final and somebody's like, your brakes are out, you have to land without your brakes, I feel like I could probably do it. On a calm wind day, I don't think you could. We might have, we to, might try have to try this. this summer. I'm all about after we, it. After we go to... What's, after we, what's middle bass? 1800? After 1800. we go to uh, Putin yeah. Bay, land yeah, and see if we can get the uh, Port Clinton... Hit the Port geese. Clinton uh, yeah. AWOS. We need to... Yeah. Let's dodge the geese. Let's get the Portland A Wass on the ground. <laughs> right. And That's let's land in middle pass without breaks. It's gonna be Lake I Erie just, Island pilot. I know on I mean obviously on grass it wouldn't even be a challenge. Oh, well, I'll take you up on that too. We should mark off that would be the place to start. Let's mark off eighteen hundred feet at your at you know the airport where you're based. Oh, that would be that would be absolutely easy. That'd be completely easy. Well, let's mark it off on the uh, let's mark it off on the grass and see how it goes. Okay. Uh yeah. I want to be. I want to be I, there when we do I, this this summer. This. Oh, oh we wouldn't do it without you. We wouldn't do it without you. All right. You don't think I could do it on grass? I don't know. You're just awfully confident that you can, and I bet I'm coming up on the same number of 150 hours that you have. Probably. Oh, I'm sure. You're better they're in a different airplanes. What's that? I'm said. I'm sure you're better in a 150 than I am. But well, no, that's that's not true. You guys are probably both better in 150s than I am. But I'm just that, saying, I've seen a broad range of its operating, whether I'm flying or somebody else is flying, and I I don't know. I have not tried to short field land a, a 150 on. on I'm call, I'm talking calm wind, dude. I mean, yeah. to just to take that variable out because oh yeah, you got 29 headwind. Well, yeah, I that changes everything. Yeah. I guess that's true. I don't know. Keep it completely calm. 1,800 feet. You can't roll an inch off the end. The spinner can be an inch off. That nose wheel can't be All right. a centimeter off. You know, I mean, you might be right. I don't know. I, just, I don't know if I am. I don't know if I am. I'm just saying. I'll have to, to say, look. oh, it'd be easy. I just don't know if it would well, be. I can look at my Rob, phone what do you right think? I, I, it's been yeah, so yeah. long. Uh, I can tell you. you think, I, can, I can land to the east. At hind and make the turner off to my hangar without using the brakes. I know I do that. I do that all the time. So I'll see how I'll see how long that is. Yeah, that's yeah. that's easy peasy. I remember yeah. I remember after I get, had enough experience and like and I knew I could get it in real short. I would actually land long there because I knew I just oh have yeah to, you don't want to taxi. Back. I would just have yeah. to power up and then taxi up to the to the hangar yeah. I had the plane in. 
If, yeah, no, I I agree. That was that's probably the way to do that. Yes. Yeah, it's just it is just so apples and oranges though. You know, you gradient. Remember, middle bass is completely flat. It is probably not point zero one difference end to end gradient. So it's completely flat. So you have no uphill helping you okay. to slow down. From the end of the runway to the turn off to my hangar is sixteen hundred feet, and I know I do that without using my brakes. That's grass, okay, though. That's grass. Middle bass. Grass. Is grass. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. may have a little uphill. Uh, actually, that would be downhill from that end. But yeah, okay. I mean, okay, you yeah. do go up and okay. down and hit a lot of. Yeah, but it kind of the it's kind of a plateau, and then it goes down a little bit. Okay. So most most of your most of your length, most of that distance would be downhill. Okay. Okay. But that's grass. Pavement yeah, is completely is... different. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if I could do it on pavement. I just think I could. Right. Well, well I, don't right. I don't know that you couldn't. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just let me kind of. I mean, I, I don't know but that you. Now couldn't. that I did I'm that, I'm there. I know I could make that turn off at sixteen hundred feet without using my brakes because I do it fairly frequently. And what do you think the the average winds are? I mean, because you're not flying in hellacious winds either, so oh, it's relatively. I don't fly calm. in any wind, Lee. <laughs> okay, it's almost always well, calm when I fly. Okay, so we can take that out of the equation. So yeah. it's pretty much. So if there is anything that would that's helping you, it's the fact that it's grass. Well, grass, obviously. I mean, you you're gonna roll a lot more on hard surface than you are on grass. Right. Right. You know, ride ride your bike on grass versus ride your bike on pavement and you can feel the resistance it's probably three times two or three times as much at least oh, on yeah, something for sure. yeah light, you know yeah yeah right right so i don't you might be right i might roll right off the end of the runway on 1800 paved i don't know i just feel like i could do once i got slow enough i could do s turns use just using the rudder and the the steering springs you know yeah no and yeah i mean you just, I, I would be confident that you could probably pretty quickly after landing. Yeah, I mean, this is to do it right out of the gate, I think, is also another. It might take another me a couple tries. Huge, it might take me a couple yeah. tries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, some, some little, I think we'll have a blast figuring out, though. Yeah. Why, why, where, why, how did we get there? How I did have we no get idea. To short field landings. We're talking about equipment. Required equipment. That we somehow got off to the that off of flashlights. So I'm going to go to part two. Okay. <laughs> which is, which is a cockpit checklist containing the procedures required by paragraph B of this section, uh, which is we'll get into when we get to paragraph B of this section. Uh, part three is pertinent aeronautical charts. This is if you're flying VFR your sectional chart. If you're flying in a terminal area, your terminal area chart. If you are flying IFR, your IFR chart. You should probably carry a sectional too, just for situational awareness. Um, is that, Can you think of any others, Lee? No, I, I mean, yeah, you covered it. Yeah, yeah. Have the, have the applicable chart for the rules you're flying under where you're flying. And the question I would ask is, how current does it need to be? That's the question I would ask you guys. Can it be out for of the, date for the sectional chart? Yeah, let's say the sectional because IFR. I would say I would probably argue that it needs to be within. You know, it needs to be in date. 
I have one in my plane from from 2006. And I feel like that's probably still good. <laughs> I mean, that's not the one that you're using when you're navigating. That's for reference only. I when I flew regularly, I had a, <laughs> I had a subscription, so they would just automatically mail me one whenever it changed. So I always had the most recent one. Right, right. And well, and Scott, Scott, I mean, Scott always has the most current one as well. He just is saying he happens. I, to well, have. that's my the 2006 one's my backup. Well, no, it's you, you for have reference four, you only. You flight, for reference, right? not for navigation. Like nowadays, we use four flight or the Garmin I have four flight when I pay my subscription, but you know I haven't done that in a while, so it's you don't fly that often. I only pay my subscription when I need it. Like when you come up here this summer and we go flying somewhere, I'll pay my subscription to four flight, but I don't go anywhere. No. Just the three month one, though. You don't go crazy. Well, no, I pay for the whole year because it's lower rate. You know? Oh, I don't think my four flights up to date either. I haven't paid that in a while. Wow! I, luckily, at work they they give us all that good stuff. You got four flights you know, for free. Yep, yep. It is very don't handy. Use to it. Have. I love no? the paper sectional though. Ah, it is handy, but I still so very rarely use it. I very rarely use four flights. Like I, I, I prefer the paper for for planning when you're for when planning, I'm not, maybe for, when I'm not in the aircraft, I prefer the paper chart. But as soon as I am sitting down in a confined area, I like the iPad but with the four flight. I don't know. Four flight, like if you're going somewhere, you put in your aircraft's information and your start and your destination, and it tells you everything you need to know. Like yeah. when we were learning to fly, like you needed a plotter and a that what's that uh the E six B or whatever, whatever that's called, yeah, one of those yeah. things. Yeah, I still use the E six B. I got a watch that does it too. Who does that? You don't need that. Just plug that into four flight, and you're good to go. I prefer both. I. Would you say? I said I prefer say both. I, prior to getting in the aircraft, I prefer that old school setup. But once once I'm in the aircraft, I want everything set up on four flight. I don't want to have to deal with any of that. I agree. I agree with you. There is just something about the purest nature of I don't need batteries. It's a skill that most people don't have. It's a skill that when I have a new student, I have to teach to anyway. So to keep sharp and show them the benefit of like the roots, because to some people like engineer type people or doctors, there is definitely an easier way. They're going to ask you the same question. Well, how does it, you know, you put the numbers in the, um, the electronic E6B, you put the numbers in, well, how does it do that? They want to. They're going to ask you the questions anyway. So you eventually have to move over to the traditional. Uh, E6B well, I think everybody computer. should know how to do it. I never. I never learned the traditional E six B. I'd like to. Uh, I plan on no? at some point. You always use the electronic. I've always used the electronic one from Sporties, which the one that and you guys had the same flight instructor, primary flight instructor. So that's yeah, he must have just let you use the. Well, I'm cheap, so I didn't buy the electronic one. I got but, now. It looks like an ancient, ancient thing. But oh, it, it is an ancient yeah, thing. Like, sport, I, mean, like I, I bought the Sporties one, but I think from like 2004, and the one they sell now is so like way nicer. There you so go. I'm opening, I'm opening. That's my flight bag. Seriously, this is an aluminum yeah. one from Jeppesen. For, yeah, for those that can't yeah, watch, Lee's this, holding up the, Lee has the a mechanical E6B. I think I own one of those. Yeah. I yeah, just if, never opened. I it. had a paper. I had a paper one. It was like cardboard one. Whatever. Yeah, and I had one of those too, but I wore it out because I actually used yeah. it on like most people. No, but yeah, believe I it or not, like I can use I know how to do 
all this. I would have to actually at this point, I'd have to take uh, refresh myself with some stuff. But you put in some basic computation, like it was a complete and total like, oh my god, I have no idea. I can't keep track of all the stuff you're telling me. Put in a question that you know an answer to under the slide rule for everybody who kind of knows what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk about like the slide rule or whatever and put in something you know the answer to and then go around the outside until you see the right answer and you're like, oh, okay, I got this. And then put I in the knock, question. I, don't, I just haven't done question. it yet. I don't knock it. I'd like to know how to use one of those. Or or you could download for flight, put in your aircraft's information and put in I recommend your, your start stuff. and your destination. Tell you I recommend doing both as well. Well, it does tell you, but I like real real time. I want to know what my true airspeed is when I'm flying a J three Cub. What's four flight going to do for me? Well, you could figure that out without my using that true speed. airspeed. No, you can't. How are you going to do that? Four no? has four flight has an airspeed built in. Like, uh, yeah, doesn't it? Doesn't uh, it like tell you that? One, but. Well, I, I I don't know. I've never used that function in it. First off, I never took an iPad in a J3 Cub. Second, I didn't know it had that function. Third, I don't know how it would calculate that for me. Because I have to put in information in it, just like I have to put it yeah, in this Yeah, you put E6B. in the information, I think, in the app. So why right, can't I just put, do it on you, this thing? Why can't I just do it in this thing for a fraction can, of the weight? Because it's going to... Well, you already have your phone with you. You tell me you leave your phone at home? I don't know. I don't have four flight on my phone. I don't have four flight on my phone. Well, you could... Okay. That, okay. I, I, okay. I give you that. Paying okay. the subscription yeah. any or somebody's paying the subscription anyway. Right. No. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Well, if you have I know, but, login information to it or anything, well, you could. I'm sure they would give you the login information for your. They might. They might. They might not. But the last time I actually used it in a in a GA airplane, I was not flying for this operator. I'm not a four flight fan. Fan. I mean, for pre. See, I'm the opposite of Rob. I would say I would be more inclined to use it pre flight planning. Versus the in-flight planning. So, Lee, you would use ForeFlight for your pre-flight and then deal with the hassle of the giant sectional chart and trying to wrangle that in-flight while you're flying? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how, I mean, if you go like, stretch it to the extreme and you're going cross-country, like literally, you know, um, New York to L.A. in a small airplane, it's going to get cumbersome, I suppose, you know, flying with the sectional, but... In my opinion, which I have not done that in a GA or in a light GA airplane. Um, but if I were to do that, I have hours and hours and hours of nothing else to do. I have folding and wrangling uh, a sectional. It's probably not. It's more of a housekeeping function at that point than it is, you know, really a. I don't know something that is really going to interfere with my enjoyment of that flight. Yeah, I mean, I know it's, you know, okay. going to get a little unruly, you know, you're going whatever, but. It just always drove me nuts because, like, the planning part, you have a nice, you have a table and you've charted out and it's all nice. And then you get in the plane, you're trying to fold it, you're, the line, you, it's going to the edge, and then you got to, like, flip it over, refold it. And it just always annoyed yeah, me. We were also well, in four flights that are that. pretty crammed, too. There's not a whole lot of room in those. True, true. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you go 150, and, you know, I guess if you want to, you start talking to something that has some kind of interior volume, like a Cirrus or something. You're just going to file IFR and you're going to go back to more of a four flight based, you know, uh, low and root not, chart anyways. Not if you're not instrument rated. 
Right. So chances are, I mean, are you going to, I guess, I don't know what the composition of Cirrus owners is, whether they're, you know, IFR pilots or just, you know, private pilots. But most of them are probably. If you're, but. I would assume if you're playing at that level, you have an instrument rating or are on your way to get an instrument rating. And I would tend to agree with you. So when you get to something, like I said, that has kind of the volume where maybe that would start to work, I guess it's kind of a paradoxical thing because you have the room maybe to kind of, you got an autopilot, so you got hands free and you have kind of the room to maybe whip it out and, and kind of unfold and refold and all the stuff just the way you want it, but you're not going to do it anymore. So it's kind of a paradox, like I was saying. I guess, you know, the the last time, which the last time I flew the Cub was in 2017. That's three years ago from the time of the recording here. But um, I took my E6B with me, and I took a sectional chart with me. And I just kind of, I enjoyed that grassroots experience and planning out my true airspeed. Um, but it's all relative. That's a very short flight. If you're going, like I said, New York to LA in a light airplane, you're going to have a lot of sectionals with you. And you're also going slow enough that refolding every hour is probably not that big of a deal. So when you when you did this nostalgic like roots, back to roots flying, did you order the the leather bomber jacket and white scarf from Sporties? Oh, I had it on. The, I uh, actually put it on when I left the house and I drove that way in my car to the airport. Did, or did you have the goggles on? Of course. Well, those, those goggles only when it didn't impede my vision, my peripheral vision. Okay. Did you, yeah. did you cut the windshield of the plane out? So it gave you the old open <laughs> cockpit feel. No, well, you know, with the cup, you, know, you can leave the upper half of the door open. So you can just, whenever you feel the need to feel that really, really nostalgic grassroots, you just stick your head out. Yeah. Oh, just stick yeah, it to the right, uh, out true, the window. Like, like oh, Snoopy true, on like, top of his doghouse. If, if you're flying an old World War One plane, you don't have the option of coming back in. Like, you're, all, you're outside the whole time. So Yeah, but I was in a 1945 airplane. So why do I need to feel like World War One? Well, because... You're trying to go back as far as possible, right? Using the old... Well, don't project on me. You go get your (laughs) sop with camel or whatever the hell you want to do. (laughs) J3 is what I was flying. That's where I was trying to be. Go do your bipod plan on your own Fancy J3s. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. All all those creature comforts. Yeah. Windshields. Windshields and heat. What's happening to (laughs) pilots these days? I Do J3s have heat? Well, <laughs> that's a really good question. Barely. There's, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of stuff. Well. No, there's a lot of stuff you can do, though, to make it better um, that people just don't do because that's a fair weather airplane. By today's standards, like we are just talking about, you can't go anywhere in it, really. Nobody wants to get out of sectional chart. And, I mean, I don't know. I think about it all the time. If I were to go somewhere down to Florida to visit Rob, am I going to be comfortable, me, Am I going to be comfortable getting in a J3 Cub and flying no radio, no electric, sectional chart, and a pencil? That'd be something you do just for like a YouTube video series or something. Not like, yeah, you'd have to be doing it for something other than just to do it. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, I would do it just to do it, though. If you knew like a high pressure system was going to be in the, the whole area for a few days and you had time, you know. 
Oh yeah, the weather would be good. good. Yeah, I mean, if you knew you had clear weather for a few days, I think it'd be fun. Well, if, well, even if it's not, even if you have like three days of clear weather here, and you know, you know, if time was no element when you right. got there, yeah. that yeah, that is what we I think you're just waiting for a window of clearing clear weather. Yeah, have your stops yeah. planned so you're yeah. not, you know, kind of Shanghai somewhere, you know that that, that sucks. You know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, but it, it can be done. People have been flying those types of airplanes across the country, north, south, east, west, forever, for 70 years. So, I mean, I, I would like to think that it's still possible today. It may be more difficult, might take more planning, and uh, you might have to be a little bit more uh, focused on what the weather is doing so you can make your fuel stops. Because remember, you only have 175 miles of range. So it's a totally different deal from today. But when you think of per- back to back to the topic here, when you think of pertinent aeronautical chart, what I started with was does it need to be current? And you know, so you guys, you guys brought up well, VFR. You know, I got a 2006 that I use for reference only, and you know, if it's IFR, it probably needs to be accurate. Don't we agree that IFR needs to be within its date range? Right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think everything should be within the date range, but well, so here's the thing: if you look on the uh, in the sectional, there's a disclaimer on there that it says it doesn't purport to basically identify all obstacles and terrain. So it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess they're putting up cell phone towers like crazy. Right, they're putting them up left and right. So I mean, even if you have a current up to date section, still got to check could, modems, all that. Yeah, stuff. there could be a new tower up. Right. So your VFR, you're looking out the window. The FAA wants you to look out the window 90% of the time. So do that. And, um, you know, obviously obstacle clearance avoidance, fly the right altitudes. We can talk about that. But, you know, does it need to be accurate? Yeah, it probably should be. And wh- wh- what's a sectional cost? If you're already paying for a four flight, it's already updated one and it's cheap. And if you got to buy a sectional or a terminal area chart so you have a what better is a view. Go for it these days. Yeah, I got to be honest with you. I don't know. Last I knew, I think they're like 13 bucks. And maybe yeah. that's, maybe I can't remember correctly, but I think there's something about it. And, and I hope that there are private pilot or student pilots out there that can identify kind of with what I'm saying. Because reading a sectional and using a sectional to navigate long distances uh, is a dying art, just like driving stick shift. It's a dying art. Everybody, you know, plugged into four flight, follows the line. Pugs in a Garmin follows the magenta line. You could probably just, find like a, a Chinese knockoff sectional on Wish for like three dollars. Imagine. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's possible. Oh God! But we'll put it in the show notes if you can find some deals, Scott. Yeah, yeah. See, if, see if anybody can find some Chinese knockoff sectionals. That thirteen dollars is a bit much. Save us, save us pilots some money. Always looking for yeah. the deal. Yeah. And then uh, number four, for IFR, VFR, over-the-top or night operations, each pertinent navigational in-route, terminal area, and approach and letdown chart. Oh, so these are two different sections, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, so we've kind of addressed that one already. What is a letdown chart? I mean, basically, like if... um, I mean, really... Uh, I mean, I guess I would call it more like a. Uh, they're 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 listing it here. Um, they're saying in route, so that's kind of your low in route, and then your terminal chart. So that, of course, um, 
that would be like your uh, star standard terminal rival route chart um, or arrival. I mean, I guess pretty much what you say. Let down the way they're describing it here is if kind of like I think uh, I can't be sure if somebody has a better knowledge of it. Maybe in I bet in the U.S. it's probably rare, even in remote places like Alaska. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'd like to know if I am. Um, it, this is if you have like crazy um, m- mountainous terrain. You have to do specific types of, I believe, specific types of uh, maneuvers, I guess is the best way to describe it, to slowly lose altitude. So think if you have like an insane mountain ridge or you're down in a valley this airport is, you have to hit this you know, NDB or this VOR and you're going to do this holding pattern type uh, uh, maneuver while you descend down to an altitude to start the so approach, hit, if that so makes you don't any hit sense. The mountains surrounding the airport. Basically, yep. Fly high up above the mountains, clear the mountains by you know whatever your margin is, which is at least a minimum of two thousand feet above the highest obstacle um, in mountainous terrain. So you'll fly at least that high above it, get to this point, and then fly outbound and and do whatever the brisk prescribed maneuver is and i don't know what that is i've never seen one never used one i probably never will to be honest with you but again this is probably a throwback you know now we have these arrivals these rnav which is kind of another rnav is area navigation which includes gps and with these databases where they basically use latitude and longitude lines to describe a point, you don't need a ground-based navigation aid. Before, we were always limited to wherever you could put a ground-based navigation aid, meaning an NDB or a VOR or something like that. We don't have that limitation anymore. You can use latitude latitude and longitude lines and put a waypoint anywhere you want using latitude and longitude. So anything you can plug in a GPS, an RNAV, um, or an RNAV system um, works. So you can have very complex... Uh, arrivals with step downs and on an altitude. So your your transition from your en route altitude down to your arrival altitude, which slowly kind of gets you down towards your approach altitude. There are very few limitations. It'd have to be a pretty, it'd have to be a very specific instance. But I mean, some of the most mountainous stuff we have around here, you know, Denver, going to some of these airports, um, you know, Vail, uh, Telluride, um, all these very complex airports, they have arrivals that get you down where you know where you need to be to start the approach, um, which are still high by most standard, high above the ground. Of course, they're high MSL-wise because they're in the mountains, but high even AGL-wise because of all the terrain around. So the weather needs to be pretty good you know, to get in there. But since we can do everything latitude-longitude-based, we don't need these ground-based we can. We don't really need to use the letdown charts, as far as I know. I've never used one. I don't expect to, but that's the only place I can think of them. Unless you guys know something I, just, I don't. Sounds sounds like a very disappointing chart. <laughs> well, the military may use them um, for you know, kind of like kind of like combat stuff. They do very <laughs> weird stuff, you know, over bases. Giving Scott too much credit on that one. He's trying to make a silly joke. He's not really looking for more information. Okay. He's just being a, just being a butthead. Because <laughs> it's called a let down chart. Down chart, Lee. Get it? Disappointing. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Lee was in the zone. He wasn't in the mood for humor at the moment. No. Um, just, you know, at some point, I want people to get some kind of education. At some yeah, point. No, no, no. It's good. 
Yeah, me That's too. Here, I don't, they would I don't not know get anything. They would not get I, I don't know enough to educate people, so I'm just here to crack stupid jokes. No, you and know ask plenty. Well, you, I know a You know bit. plenty, just this subject, maybe, is not. Yeah. I because like my, I think we're about to get to checklist usage, and I'm sure this can, that's going to be really entertaining. My purpose <laughs> is only to ask questions and, and make stupid jokes. That's Before it. we move on, there's there's private um there's like private software that some fl- like fleet companies buy that gives you tighter tolerances. Am, am I wrong? Yes. And there are actually, there are companies, you know, like you have, um, is you're talking about as far as like uh, arrivals and stuff like that to get in and out, like, cause you're using Jepson or the government charts and stuff. There's newer charts. And I, um, I want to say, I want to say it was Jack Cochran that told me that he either has used this at some companies he's dealt with or uses it now at the company he does. Um, if if it is him, we'll have him on the program to explain it. But he's he was like, these are like in normal situation, like out in those mountainous areas. From what I remember in the conversation, he was saying you can take off and basically go down these routes that this company has privately figured out that it's good. And it's like way tighter tolerances than um all the government and the Jepson stuff. It says, yeah, something. I mean, so, so like you look at, there's um what are called like RNP arrivals. I don't know if there are RNP departures, but there's RNP arrivals, RNP approaches. And so those basically are, are really good or not a really good, but they're a blend of um, an RNF approach and RNP stands for required navigation performance. And so, like, you can see, so the, like, let's say you're talking about a certain airport, um, like Washington, uh, Reagan, Washington, yeah, um, uh, Reagan, uh, DCA, um, KDCA is the airport. And so you're doing all these, you know, kind of complex uh, uh, approaches in bad weather, and they only get you down so low, and so if the weather has to be, you're still pretty good to even do these. But it's such a specific airspace that they have to really tailor these approaches to work with it, you know, with the prohibited areas that are there and in in the small airport and blah, blah, blah. So, like, you know, they'll be doing, uh, uh, you know, my carrier that I flew for, you know, we had, I was based at DCA. Um, we had to do, you know, like this LDA type approach, if I, my memory serves me. And it took you in at this angle to the runway and you only got down so low. But then like, so when the weather was bad, you'd hear like bigger operators calling. They wanted an R&P approach to that same runway. And what that does is that gives you on R&P approaches, they're curved approaches. So like nothing, they're not like most approaches we're used to seeing are like all straight lines. And like you'll have like dog legs, and then you straighten out again, and then another dog leg, like a, you know, because you can only do straight lines. Well, these RNPs have curved approaches, like a DMER call most. It's really, really cool, but they are really RNPs tend to require navigation performance. And it's constantly the FMS, the flight management system in the airplane, is constantly analyzing what performance you actually have. So to shoot that approach, you have to have a certain amount of navigation performance. So the FMS, you know, cross talks to one another and they, those cross talk to cross talk. I don't know why I'm using that phrase. I don't, I can't think of the phrase, the, whatever the uh, actual word is, 
but they basically they all communicate and they'll communicate with VORs and they'll do all this triangulation basically to very accurately find out where you are. They'll use GPS, they'll use VORs, they'll use all kinds of different uh, uh, software and, and basically really accurately figure out where you are. And so that is kind of what your performance number is. And uh, so it will give you a message if you, the tolerances are exceeded. So that would tell you, hey, you can't shoot this rep- approach. Like, let's say that it's RNP, you know, 0.3 or RNP 0.1. If you don't meet that spec, it will tell you and be like, oh, yeah, okay, we can't shoot that approach today for whatever reason it is, whether there's a satellite that's out of view or whatever the case may be. And maybe, you know, maybe it's just, maybe that's all it is. Maybe it's just satellites. You know, you only have so many satellites and it needs one more and that one's offline or it's out of view or whatever the case may be. So it will tell you whether you can do that or not. Basically, it'll just give you a flag of some sort. I've never flown any RNP uh, approved equipment, so I don't know that much. But um, you know, I know JetBlue, I believe, is RNP based. Uh, I bet that um, NetJets. I know NetJets back in the day, they kind of are similar. I think to what you're talking about, where they have, uh, I believe, NetJets was probably kind of the pioneer in the t- type of stuff you're talking about instead of flying some convoluted inefficient routes out of maybe the greater New York area, um, they flew these uh, Q routes or T, I can't remember all the different ones, you know, but um, maybe T routes, I'm not sure, that are very efficient. They keep them out of, they minimize the inefficiencies, uh, you know, for them. That's, I, maybe that's what Jack was talking about. I'm not sure. It'd be great to it, talk to him, see what it is. I'll have to do a little bit more research. Yeah, it, it's something along those lines because what you had I touched on that conversation, it, the the conversation I was having with it was it was going over my head a little bit just because I don't have that experience in the in the jets. Yeah, well, I mean, you can um, think about the monetary. Uh, I mean, yeah, you have some expense in subscribing to this service, maybe. Because they've done a lot of legwork, they're going to pass that on to the consumer, and that's great. But if you think, you know, if you're doing the volume required, or you're doing any volume in there, it does not take much to save significant amount of money. If if you can get, you know, a straighter line, or you can climb sooner, New, New York airspace is notorious keeping you down low for a long, long time. Um, and that's just fuel yeah. out the window. Jet turb- turbine aircraft are incredibly inefficient down low, incredibly inefficient. So the objective is to always climb. It's not not just speed that you're going after, because sometimes you're going as fast as you can go uh, ground speed wise at a lower altitude than you would think. But up at altitude, you know, because, you know, like in the winter, you're going west against the jet stream, probably. Um, you can yield the same ground speed at 18,000 that you can at 38,000, but your fuel burn is much lower. So it's not all about speed. It's just about efficiency. And in a lot of jet aircraft where you are very fuel limited, um, you know, business aircraft, I guess, business jet aircraft, um, you know, that, that matters. You need to get up there quick or you're going to be making a fuel stop. Yeah. Uh, Let's get on to part five. Keep it going here. In case of multi-engine airplanes, one-engine inoperative climb performance data. So this is if you're in multi-engine airplanes, um, sometimes one fails and the entire performance characteristics of the airplane change uh, upon being on one engine. 
and you got to have all the the like the performance data to be able to handle that is a summary of would be my summary of that right yeah yeah i mean when you start talking typically now they're not specifically in subpart f they're not specifically spelling this out but typically when you get into a large turbine powered aircraft you have what I would kind of call as proven performance. The manufacturer, when they developed this airplane, they came up with performance specs. So if it is this weight, this temperature, basically, basically they develop a, a density altitude, you know, um, number. So if you weigh this much at this density altitude, you're going to climb this this amount. You will be able you will be able to climb, but how much is temperature and pressure and weight dependent? So, um, the, the most, you know, small aircraft, small GA guys are like, oh, you know, I was taught, you know, you can turn into a glider or, you know, whatever. And it's not proven to be able to, you, you watch the King videos, it's not proven to climb. This is different when you start talking about large, so large meaning over 12,500 pounds and then turbine aircraft, there is some element of, uh, uh, excess performance that even on one engine you can still climb. Yeah, of course you'll reach a weight and a temperature and a pressure where that's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to climb. Every every airplane has its limit, but with and that's something you need to know. You know, even even in the uh, transport category, which this is not explicitly saying, even the transport category, airliners, there is a limiting. You know, if the the temperatures right now are x the pressure is x and my runway is whatever that means if if it says i can't take off the only other variable that i can change is weight and then you just keep deducting weight deducting weight deducting weight until you can yield in that calculation a climb performance that will allow you to climb safely and clear the obstacles so, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors in it. I mean, I guess I'm really drawing this out, but, you know, you know you're know, you used to, if you're flying a, a Piper Seneca or a Beechcraft Baron or, you know, a Seminole, if you're just learning to fly and you're flying a Piper Seminole or an Apache, if you're going old school, you, you're not guaranteed to climb when that engine fails. That, that is zero guarantee of that. But then there's a threshold in the regs in part 23 and, and definitely, so that's, you know, normal category aircraft. Uh, in some commuter category, but there's definitely a threshold in there where you start hitting on the fact that even when an engine does fail, there is some expectation that the aircraft will still continue to climb under certain conditions. Yeah, there's some jets that you lose an engine on climb out, and it's just like you got some checklist stuff to do, but you're not. Yeah, you can still climb. You're still calling. You know what? Up. You know. Oh no! Yeah, and all transport category jets and and like i said this is not specifically stating transport category it's just saying large turbine powered so that would be any of the cj series which are not transport category those are normal category airplanes because they're single pilot yeah they happen to be large because they're over 12.5 they happen to be turbine because they got jet engines but they're not transport category there is some pro there's in part 23 which those are certified under there are expectations they will climb under certain circumstances and you could bury or dig into part 23 and find out what those are and of course that's all in the in the approved flight manual for that airplane but in part 25 which is transport category airplane which is all your lear jets all your gulf streams a lot of your cj's citations uh hawkers whatever 
airliners, all the airliners, every airliner anybody has ever been on is transport category, which obviously makes sense. Those most airliners, have, if they lose an engine, they they can still fly just fine. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm. That, that's I, yeah. and I am probably doing a very bad job because yeah, you're asking the question that I'm trying to state. If you're in an airliner and you're taking off out of anywhere, when that engine fails, that airplane will be able to climb safely and clear not only lift off the runway safely, but it will be able to climb safely and clear any obstacles. Uh, any you know, any obstacles. Period. Well, they'll be able to climb and and clear any if there's any mountains, you'll clear the mountains. You'll just climb in a holding pattern probably until you get to a safe altitude, and then you you know you'll run your checklists, and then you'll uh come back in if you need to or go on to a more suitable airport. Then they used to have a reg if you're flying over a certain amount of ocean or open water that you had to have more than two engines. I don't know, but isn't I mean, that part of the reason why they, isn't that part of the reason why they kind of switched to the, the larger twin engine airliners? You're talking they got rid of that yeah, requirement. Old school transatlantic regulations, aren't you? Yeah. I, I think th- there used to be a reg that you had to have, uh, more than two engines to fly like transatlantic or transpacific. Yeah, I know exactly why your brain is. It's a Wendover um, YouTube video you saw, wasn't it? No, oh. no, no. I heard. I don't this, know. I don't know what you're talking before. about. But an A330 right now has two engines. Well, yeah, and it, so does a triple seven or a, a seven a, five. Yeah, any of those. Yeah, yeah that's a good seven, point. We well, see Lufthansa or, and stuff like that flying. You know, the A380 and the people are or whatever. All those. Well, A380 has four engines, but like I know that's what I'm saying. It has yeah. more than two. Yeah, but isn't that part of the reason why that? big manufacturers like Airbus and Boeing switch to large twin engine airliners versus the super jumbo four engines, you know, 747s and A380s cuz they they got rid of that requirement that you had to have more than two I'll engines. Try. There's to fly a really good YouTube video overseas. that goes in depth on this. If I if I can find I, it, I will put it in the I show could be notes. way off on this. It's, I can't remember if it was it must have been a video I watched or something. Well, Somewhere I heard be, this before. I don't know. Well, if you think about the root of all of these regs, it's back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. You know, you're talking oh, yeah. about radial engines and blah, blah, blah. Well, that makes sense because right. you're losing such a huge percentage. If you lose one engine on a, you know, uh, yeah, if you're a, flying a, a DC-3 radial and engine, you lose one engine, you're probably not going to fly very well off the other one. I mean, you, no. sure you could still stay in the air, but it's probably not good. Not at cruise altitude. I bet you couldn't. I bet you're doing Probably what's not, called, you know, yeah. a drift down. And yeah. so, yeah, you're going to put the other engine at maximum continuous power slowly and you're going to slowly, slowly drift down. So it's just, re- yeah. and eventually you're going to get to an altitude where it stabilizes. Yeah. But all along the way, as you've descended, you've increased your mixture to keep, you know, it running you yeah. know, appropriately. So you're burning so more fuel. fuel. You say you've slowed down, your con- your fuel consumption's gone up. That is not good for a long, long flight. Well, yeah. And, I assume and I'm you're not saying you're going to gonna try and make it your destination. You're just trying to make it to the, no, it the first emergency airport, stop. But you're, you're obviously going to have to increase your power too in the engine that you have left. So you're going to be more, more than fuel. likely. Yeah. More than likely. And, and it's going to get less efficient. You're going to have less true airspeed. You're going to have more fuel consumption. Both of those are burning the, you know, burning the candle at both ends, you know? So 
No. Yeah, that's just something you need to think about. But yeah, now everybody's you know pretty much two engines. I mean, I can't think of anything that's yeah, like really no, popular. They, they don't even they're not even producing anything that's more than two engines anymore that I know no, of. No, I think of the reliability of the modern oh yeah turbofan yeah. engine. Well, I mean, I the, haven't had a hiccup. The new the new triple seven nine holds almost as many passengers as the. 747 and it only uses two engines think of the maintenance you're saving on that you know oh the maintenance the per engine consumption yeah i mean yeah oh yeah it, it's it's well, it's, actually, fuel consumption. it's actually longer than the 747 it's just doesn't have the upper deck it holds almost many passengers you're saving a ton of maintenance on that i just thought it was some i just thought there was a requirement that the the faa or somebody dropped about how long you could fly overseas with with two engines versus I will try to find there's a really good YouTube video that goes into this for like a half an hour explaining all that that I'll put it in the show notes if I can find yeah. it. Yeah, I bet back in the day that was probably a thing, you know, you're talking about turbine engines or you're talking yeah. about, you know, radial engines, you know, a, a Super Connie or right. you know, Constellation, yeah. Yeah. all that stuff, TWA, you know. Right. And yeah, you're, that's you're just not the world we live in stars or whatever they're called. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. I don't know what a TriStar is, but isn't that the uh, isn't that what they called the? Uh, I don't know. I could have the name wrong. I don't remember. Well, I don't know. I'm not an aviation aficionado. I, I like. No, my I'm not hero. either. Yeah. Well, you know more about that stuff than I do, I guess. But not really. All right, Rob. What you got? What's next? Oh, uh, that wraps up part A. Uh, part B, uh, which we referenced earlier. Each cockpit checklist must contain the following procedures and shall be used by the flight crew members when operating the airplane. Uh, And then it lists uh, seven, basically seven checklist areas you need to have. Uh, First one is before starting engines, which this is the same in a small Cessna or Piper that you're training in. You have a before starting checklist, which is usually your pre-flight checklist uh, in the smaller GA world, right? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Pre-flight is pre-flight. Before starting engines is before starting engines. So that's a specific, like, more complex engines require an actual checklist for the engines to bring them up. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's the way I would probably look at it. Yeah, there's maybe more possibility of damage if you do things out of sequence or omit something or. You know, whatever. I don't know what the reason is, but I would say there's definitely a difference between a pre-flight checklist and a before starting engines checklist. Okay. I mean, pre-flight. You know, I'm thinking walk around, check the oil, check the fuel. You know, yeah, true. Um. So I mean, we so on like like for us, you know, we would start to we would look at that like an acceptance. It's different, and I'll let you get through this, but. Uh, yeah. Why? Yeah. Why don't you just fin- finish up this and and we'll get into the talking. And there's, points, the second one is before takeoff checklist. So this is after the engine is starting, uh, but before takeoff. Kind of self-explanatory. Uh, three is cruise. That's in-flight checklists, checklist or checklists for your setup cruise flight when you're just cruising, um, and then. Before landing, which is self-explanatory, a checklist you do before you land an aircraft. Uh, after landing, it's when you're on the ground. There's still more things you need to do, and there's a checklist you follow. Um, then sh- stopping engines, which 
shutting down the engines. Um, and then seven is emergencies. You don't have to have a pre-flight inspection legally on the bigger stuff because it's not in this reg. Or is that going to be included as part of the before starting engine stuff? Well, you go ahead. You you'd have to legally do a walk around when you're flying this bigger stuff, right? Yeah, and and, and so the go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I keep cutting. And, and use a checklist for that walk around. That's that's all I had. Yeah, I mean, so like one thing they've the FAA has kind of gotten away from, or maybe individual companies have gotten away from. You don't necessarily want to call it anymore. And I know I don't really care about political correctness per se, but just this is kind of the 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 industry that I'm in. But they've gotten away from calling it a walk around because they want to really kind of put a little more emphasis on doing a pre flight or post flight inspection because the i guess there is an undertone of the fact you're doing a walk around you're literally just walking around the airplane not looking at anything they want to call it a post-flight or a pre-flight inspection of the aircraft when when you're in a larger aircraft though the pre-flight inspection is going to be completely different than a small aircraft because i was always told to check the connections on your your ailerons your rudder check the check the you know the bolts and the rods that connect it look at it make sure they're tight if you're in a large aircraft you're not gonna be able to get up there to see that unless you have a ladder you oh dude you know. not even a ladder you need a bucket truck right yeah you know so think, there, think there's of, no way they're doing I, I was, that like every no, time and i that's fly why I wanted I, to stick, every time i fly i go on and t- i tip my rudder all the way to the right all the way to the left and i look at the bolts and the the control cables and rods you can't do that in a larger plane there's no way right so in in their their inspection program for you know at the airline level the inspection program is totally different remember they're getting a three-day check well yeah i mean they have mechanics checking these planes out all the time so it's all the time yeah three days which yeah i mean if you think about it's 15 probably 15 landings yeah so I'm trying yeah, to the think. Planes, the planes well, I guess better. I guess I can't really say. That's what we were allowed to fly. We were fly, allowed to fly five legs a day, but that doesn't mean the other crew. You know, they maximize the use of these. You know, the airplane got brought in. Maybe did one or two legs before we got it. So, we flew it for five legs, and then somebody maybe did two or three after we did. So who knows? But blah blah blah. They're doing the three a three-day inspection. Day check. The three-day inspection they mm-hmm. do is similar to like a like a intense pre-flight then, basically. I don't know what all they did. I don't really care. I mean, all I know is what we were responsible to do. I never had any questions. They did a three-day check. They did a 10-day check. All kinds of stuff. You know, it's just a different world. So, um, you know, again, the kind of the concept is flying the airplane through the air, that's what they're designed to do. You know, the the manufacturers figure out what what is what the tendencies of the air's airplanes are, and that's part of the certification. They figure out what these things are, where the weak areas are, and what needs to be inspected on, on what kind of interval. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that kind of gets disseminated down to us, you know, as the flight crew or as the maintenance personnel, whatever. And you just kind of work it into your standard operating procedures and whatever. So, you know, for, yeah, when you're doing a post flight or pre flight walk around, I mean, that's why I want that 600 lumen flashlight. 
So you can get a really good look at that, you know, the leading edge on that, uh, you know, horizontal stabilizer or that rudder. Yeah, you're not going to see individual connections, you know, I mean, angle and distance away from you. You couldn't see anything anyways. But I mean, anything you could see better is 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 good, you know, so it might be worth the cost to you to spend a little bit more on that, you know, higher dollar uh, LED flashlight. But um, yeah, you're not going to see much. You're not going to see much. But yeah, they wanted the FAA wanted to get away from calling it a walk around because then it doesn't really imply any responsibility on the individual conducting. It's a, conducting it's the same that. thing that we Does were trying to do. Yeah. It's just a, a new name. It is, but yeah, there's no yeah yeah. It's a different. It's uh, that's the same thing you were trained to do. Yeah, but there's no implication, you know that that you're. Yeah, I mean, we call it a pre-flight. We just generically call it a pre-flight, which obviously the full word is pre-flight inspection. But, you know, a lot of people like slang is walk around. Well, yeah, the slang word walk around, you use that enough. There's no implication to actually really be doing um, an inspection. You know, and remember, you were talking about people that are not flying their own airplane. They just don't really care. They're punching the clock, for lack of a better term. They just go out and they do a nice stroll on a nice day around the airplane. That's it. Yeah. It's a different. It's a different world. So they had to kind of. They wanted to make a difference. Uh, just like, well, I don't want to get into that, but um, they just wanted to assign a job to that individual. Okay. Not just say, "Hey, go for a stroll around the footprint of the airplane." You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess so. That's yeah. So pre-flight or post-flight inspection. And and so I think probably generically and, and and always refer and Rob you brought this up very um, which makes a lot of sense kind of a disclaimer for most people whatever your manufacturer says to do that's what's going to supersede anything here you know this is what the FAA says needs to be a minimum but the manufacturer may publish things that are well in you know excess of what we're seeing here in this checklist right or in this list that the FAA wants. That was Ryan Eckel that said that I don't I don't recommend anything. Well, okay, that's yeah, that's good. Well, I'm not saying <laughs> yeah. you recommended it, but I think you brought it up. Check, and yeah, I I would recommend following. Checklists are a lot of work. They're a lot of work, uh, which I do up until takeoff. I'm just kidding. Like check checklists are good, but yeah, I agree. I, up until takeoff, like after takeoff, I'm not doing any checklists for the small airplanes. I'm a yeah. I'm, I'm at 150. How much are you gonna check? You know, keep an eye on like, you. Your gauges, your instruments, and your uh, engine. If I'm flying a bigger aircraft and or one that I'm not as familiar with, then yeah, yeah. I'm doing a lot more checklists. I'm doing the cruise. I'm oh, doing yeah. Before. It's got a retractable yeah. gear stuff I'm doing before landing 100% of the time because that's scary. Does all get out having the gear up to me. Whatever. Yeah. Now, remember... The checklists you guys are thinking of are manufacturer checklists. Yes. So there's so much stuff. So much stuff. You get to an operator where they are devising their own checklists and then getting sort of uh, sending it, submitting it to the FAA, letting the FAA kind of go through it. And then they're going to go. So it's, it's a really a different process than, than most people think it is. So the operator says, hey, we want to, this is what we want our checklist to be. You submit to the FAA. And so the FAA is like, well, 
we need to prove that the, the this checklist. Yeah, okay, wow, this is way different than the manufacturer checklist. We need to know that you're still going to be operating this airplane in accordance with the manufacturer. So the FAA is going to come in. They're going to witness sim sessions, and they're going to ride in the jump seat and and watch people fly on the line using this. You know, at the time, you know, like a pseudo checklist. You know, kind of running. You know, like a in the background, or it's in the forefront, but the the real checklist, the manufacturer checklist, is running in the background. So they're like, okay, wow, the their in house standard operating procedures basically include all of the manufacturer's recommendations, although their checklist is pared down to like may, maybe pared down to or very different than the manufacturers. Does that make any sense to you guys what I said just said at all? Yeah. So so all the that phase like, well how are you going to adhere to the to the manufacturer's guidance or their limitations and the operator that is operating the aircraft can put all that into place, you know, you know, memory items on check rides and line checks and blah, blah, blah. And somewhere else they can put, they can, but there is a pretty significant emphasis by the FAA right now on air carriers to minimize checklists, not minimize their usage, but minimize the checklist because they have found that there's a lot of errors that happen. The longer the checklist is, the more people want to maybe do it by memory or they want to, or they end up omitting things, all kinds of human errors. And so they've recognized that NASA has done exhaustive studies on this. They found human error, obviously is one of the biggest things that accidents get attributed to. So they want to try and mitigate that. So we're getting now down to, you know, here's one that, you know, they're saying after landing checklist operators are starting to completely Get rid of that. Now, this is 91503. So this is a part, this is a general operating rule. So we're not talking about air carriers in this case. This is the minimum that they want. And I'm sure you can get an exemption from your local flight standards district office. But um, for the most part, this is what they want to see. You have to have good reason to deviate from this. Air carriers, 135, 121 operators, they are going to start getting away from like an after landing checklist if you are multi crew. Why would you do an after landing checklist? You get concentrate on taxing the airplane, not taking off the side of the taxiway, and get it to where you're going to park it. Include the after landing checklist items with the shutdown checklist. Yeah, you might as well do that once you get back to wherever you're parking the aircraft. I mean, What's the exactly. Point doing that? Yeah. Why are you doing all kinds of you know maybe uh, um, complex things? We well, shouldn't be doing anything extra. Longer. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing anything extra on an active runway. I mean, well, not, an, not well, not an active runway. You're not doing anything. You are nobody is doing anything well, on an active yeah. runway. I know GA guys, and that I God, I'm talking so much, and I apologize, guys, but this is a hot topic for me. Um, because I see a lot of people coming from, and this section would actually apply to them, guys coming out of a CJ, a citation jet, and they're single pilot certified. So all the checklists are designed around one person being able to get in that airplane and go fly it. Well, yeah, and that's good. And yeah, legally that's that's okay. You know, that that is that is possible. And that's the way that was the intent when they designed it. But in the multi-crew, when these people they come out of Embry-Riddle. They come out of various flight schools, and their first job is flying a 
jet, a light jet, a light transport, or not a light turbine powered airplane. And it's kind of developed around a single person. Yeah, you got somebody flying with you, but they're kind of a glorified, you know, gear puller. You know, all they're doing is flaps up, gear up, shut up. But that when you get into an airplane that is multi crew, the rules change, the ideologies change. And that is something that unfortunately doesn't get corrected unless you go to an airline where it kind of gets beat out of you in the simulator. Does that make sense? Where you, you get transported into like a multi-crew type of person. Yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can come out of a 172 where, yeah, you're running a checklist by yourself, read and do. You know, and there's various types of ways of running a checklist. So you're in a 150, 172, you're doing your initial training. You're doing this multi or this um, read and do uh, checklist, uh, you know, carb heat off, off, mixture full, rich, rich, that type of thing. That's, that's kind of the read and do uh, concept. When you get into a, uh, like, let's say you get into a multi-crew aircraft, a transport category aircraft, they're all transport category aircraft, which is part 25. Part 25 is transport category. Um. That's going to be multi-crew, at least two people, which is kind of the standard nowadays. They used to have engineers, but now it's now it's two people, a captain and a first officer. And when you get to that stage, if it's not at an airline, you're gonna it's going to be kind of a muddy, muddy mess. And I'm kind of experiencing that now at the operator that I work for, and. You have people coming from, you know, a 172 into whatever the next one is. Maybe it's a Navajo, a still single pilot. They get into a CJ and a still single pilot. When they finally get to a multi-crew aircraft, they're like, oh, well, I've flown a jet before. I've flown something that weighs more than 12,500 pounds. That is what I'm doing now. Okay, so it's the same. Well, but it's not because it was certified to a different standard. And now you have a mandatory two pilots. So the expectation is the crew resource management and there's certain ways that the, the checklist should be run and how they should be done. So when you get to that stage, you get to what's called, a, and, and manufacturers, they have the final authority. So they can, how they want it run is how they want it run. But somebody must verify the, that though. I mean, it's got to be some oversight on that, you know. There I is start an the, aircraft manufacturing company and say, you know, my recommendation is that you just no checklist, just fly the airplane. You know, well that that's very true, and that is that is a perfect example that I would want to shine a light on, and I would say, hey, just because they said it, does that align with the current guidance from the FAA right now? Yeah, there's this big accident just happened because of the way you chose to have your checklist ran. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you say, hey, that's grounds to maybe, hey, let's revisit this and then rewrite this? Now, of course, that happens. Yeah. But the the latest and greatest, you know, FAA guidance comes through the advisory circulars and blah, blah, blah. And the best practices, you know, NASA and, and, and airlines, they've come up with these accident studies and, and all this on-the-line training that maybe doesn't result in any damage any bodily harm, nothing, but it's something they identify. Well, that gets filtered down to us eventually and maybe get some watered-down version of implementation. But what you want to look at is, you know, when you start from the ground level, you're you're just learning to fly, you're a student pilot. 
you have to think, and I mean, obviously, none of us did any exhaustive research on how checklists were run back then. I know I didn't. I hated checklists. I want to do everything from memory. I thought if you used a checklist, it was like a sign of weakness. I don't know. Well, but right, you guys. I, I mean, my brain is so big. I know I don't need a checklist, but you know, it depends on the size, brain size. You do it anyway, though. It's like if it's like if you have the antibodies for Corona, but you still wear a mask just to like set a good example for others. You know, I guess there is yeah. that. Yeah. So that's that's why Scott still uses a checklist. Well, I do still use a kinda, checklist, but you know, I have neck pain a lot, and that's because of the size of my brain. So like, I don't really need a checklist. Ah. Uh, if anybody has neck pain, they, they know what I'm talking about because your brain is so big and heavy. But it's like, it's not a bad idea to use one even if your brain is that size. You know? Yeah, because it shifts your head forward. Right. And helps, yeah. you know, yeah. to read it. Yeah. You know, it gets your neck in a different position. So are you saying your frontal oh. lobe is bigger? Uh, the, is that what you're saying? The, the part oh, with the rational information is, is larger. I, I don't, I don't I think know. I think that's in the part. back, though. Okay, well then that's the bigger part. All the higher functioning stuff is in the back, I believe. I want to I want to get back on this before I lose my train of thought. Um, back to the FAA moving towards shorter lists so that people actually use them. Is that summing yeah. up kind of a convers something you touched on earlier? I'm really terrible at this, but I mean, yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have a 15-item checklist or things are going to get skipped, things are going to get shortened, shortcutted, whatever. Okay. You know, so, I mean, they're omitting full lists. Like, in, like for a perfect example, one of the things they're moving away from is a cruise checklist, an after-landing checklist, all that. Um, I mean, actually, this is, a, this is a very short list here. You know, the, the before starting engines, before takeoff, cruise, before landing, after landing, stopping engine, and emergencies. You're always going to have emergencies. And those can take place in a lot of ways. They can omit that checklist, kind of, by giving you some immediate actions that you need to either memorize. Um, so those are uh, memory items that we get tested on a ton. Um, or an immediate action checklist, so an IAC so typically an IAC, an immediate action checklist, is just a one one size, eight and a half by 11, uh, two-sided, uh, laminated. It just is kind of tucked somewhere that is readily relied upon. Immediate action checklist, that would be kind of, that would suffice to make this happen. But they want to get rid of these things. They want to get, you know, one thing they don't have in here is a taxi checklist, which a lot of things they're probably asking for here on the before takeoff or before start. Uh, maybe on a taxi checklist, that's going to have one or two items on it. A lot of these are going to be one or two items, not fifteen. So yeah, they want to they want to get away from it, so you're not you're not omitting or shortcutting stuff. Something I realize, like the one fifty checklist, kind of out of the manual that we had cards. We both had these cards set up, um, Scott, that we flipped through. I think you still have, you might have one laying around somewhere. Probably. Even though you use the one a one fifty manual. Yeah, I still have well, the one fifty. The one manual. fifty manual has the checklist and the flow to go yeah. and reflight that thing, and then and then go along in pretty logical order. And I just figured that was how all aircraft were um, until I started renting airplanes, especially from schools. It seems like down here in Florida, they all use these the the company which it's called Checkmate uh, 
checkmate list? Have you guys had any experience yeah. with checkmate. checkmate? Yeah, I've seen checkmate. They're awful. Yeah. Like they Yeah, but hold on. Checkmate, you can submit to them what you want how you want your checklist to be. Really? Yeah, there's a there's generic which you can probably order off the shelf, but you can also submit to them because I was about to do that for one of one of the operators that I previously worked for. We wanted a checklist, and the only checklist that we had was in the the binder, you know, approved flight manual. Uh-huh. We wanted to get that into a simple, you know, small checklist. You know, you carry around when you do the walk around, yeah. and, you know, go around the flight deck with. And so, but you can you can submit to them what you want it to be. So you can you can customize it from them then. Yes. Okay. Yes. I did not know that, but I don't. I don't know if it's I'm not the saying all people do that, but I know that you can. I don't know if it's the flight schools I'm going to that have just brain dead people who make them, or if like what's an example? Like why why do you hate it so much? Are you talking time, about maybe something? Every simple? time I've gotten in and started to do it, I'm just like, oh, it's that this is a di- it's a different style checklist than. You know, back when I owned my own plane and everything flowed easy, the main part, everything flowed easy. Like you did a logical walk around and the part of the checklist was where you were walking around and it was in order logically and it had a nice flow to it. Every time I've used a checkmate checklist in a rental airplane down here in Florida from multiple different airports, multiple different flight schools, I, I get to the list and it's just, it takes me four, five times as long to do the pre-flight because it's hop skipping all over the place. If I actually followed it in order, because it's like, mm. this is popping up here. It's like, oh, that would have been more logical when I was already up in the cowling, or this would have been more logical to cover when I was over on the left wing. Now I'm on the right wing. It's just, I don't know if it's the standard one they they put out as cockamamie, or if the some of the schools, the chief pilot who ordered the things and customized it, freaking was on drugs, or I don't know. I just never had a good experience with it, man. Yeah. Next, I mean, next time, next time you're doing that, yeah, take a, take a screenshot or, you know, take a picture of it. I will. I'd be interested to see what it is. I mean, I guess time and place, but you know, I don't know where, you know, I'm not going to be there where you're standing. You know, like I was already at the cowl. Why am I? I'm now on the, on the, on the left wing. Why does it tell me to check the I've never used a checkmate checklist and had a good experience. But I didn't know you could custom order them because, I mean, if I was doing that, I, I would obviously pick the an awesome way to do it, and it worked great if if that was the case. But naturally, naturally. But well, I guess I wonder how much there that checkmate checklist, how much it deviates from what the manufacturer says. All of Cessna's ones flow decent. Like if I, because that's what I started to do. Um, if I would, so could you not when you rent? Could you not just pull out the manufacturers and walk around with that? I, I have done that on on certain one seventy twos. If I knew I was renting it a lot, I'd buy. I bought the manual and I just have the book out because I didn't have the slide cards made or anything. Um, and I'd, I'd go through the book because it was way more logical than the checkmate one. And again, I I thought those were all the same. I didn't realize you could custom do it. I don't. So I don't know if that was a custom ordered one. But it's happened so often with checkmate uh, checklists in in every huh. rental aircraft I've been in that had a checkmate checklist. The order of the checklist just does not make any sense at all. That's too bad because that you know coming back to the point that does not that does not make people want to use them more. That that puts more emphasis and undermines the whole concept of using a checklist. The checklist is supposed to be there to trap errors 
and keep you, you know, running in the same direction and keep things efficient and keep things grouped. If you, from the beginning, you know, the law of primacy says you are going to remember what you learned first, best. If you have bad experiences with checklists, that undermines the whole thing. And so then you have kind of somebody who's check. Not, I don't want to say I'm checklist oriented, but when you're in the right type of aircraft, you should rely on them. They should be the authority and the operator should be refining them continually to make sure they meet the current needs, the current climate, the aircraft, the crew, whatever changes. It should meet that. It should always be evolving. It's a living document. And so from entry-level training in a 150 or a 172, if it inspires a lack of um, uh, trust or you know efficiency or whatever, and you're constantly saying, man, I wish I was back there, or I have to change the way I'm doing a logical thing to meet an illogical document, that's gonna that's gonna set the tone for the rest of your flying career, and then you're gonna come to me, you know, as a check arm, and I'm gonna try and you know beat that out of you. Like, no, in, in this airplane, we go line by line with the checklist, and there's challenge verify and all these different types of techniques for running the checklist. When all a checkmate maybe has done is completely stop you from wanting to use checklist at all. Yeah. It's like it's very, very dangerous. I always, I always assume that like Intel, like checklists were made intelligently, not by like a chief pilot, seven year old son, like who's never actually right. done a pre-flight. Like that's what I feel like when I'm used every time, everyone I've come across from like Cessnas to Pipers to Grumman's I've rented. Anywho, part C. Each emergency cockpit checklist procedure required by paragraph B7 of this section must contain the following procedures as appropriate. One, emergency operation of fuel, hydraulic, electrical, and mechanical systems. Uh, Two, emergency operation of instruments and controls. Three, engine inoperative procedures. Four, any other procedures necessary for safety. So emergency checklists, these are the ones you hopefully are using the least compared to the other ones. But these are the ones you should probably have memorized in air. No. No? I would go the opposite. If they're the most critical, they're the, they're the ones they want you to follow the closest. So you want to deviate away from memorization. Well, shouldn't you know what to do so you can act on it quickly and then grab the checklist to verify? You have immediate action items or memory items. So, you know, there's things that, you know, commonly happen in certain aircraft. And the manufacturer does a lot of testing to figure out what those things are. And then they turn those into what are called memory items in the checklist. And so there's certain, when a certain event happens, you know, uncommanded yaw or whatever the case may be, you know what the first couple of steps are to address that. You don't know the whole checklist. Okay. And I would say, you know, the, the more you can put on a checklist in, 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 a, in a, an abbreviated checklist to get you through until you can consult the main checklist, I would say the better. Don't put so much emphasis on what you can memorize because that's temporary. Yeah. We all memorize stuff, you know, getting ready for a written test or, or an oral test, and then you dump it. Yeah. How is this any different? Because I've only flown smaller aircraft where a lot of the emergency checklists are like the full thing is probably as long as a more complex airplane's first 
to you you need to know? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, and I and I think a good instructor or a good um, operator or a flight school maybe would find a way of creating a checklist or working with their examiner to develop a checklist um, that kind of is our catch-all type checklist. Like, memorize like one master or, or, you know, maybe a couple of variations of a master emergency checklist. If it's a, in a light, a light piston single or something, do you know? Okay, is the engine is the engine on fire, or do you suspect the engine on fire? You're going to proceed this way. If you don't suspect the engine on fire, you're going to go this way. You know what I mean? And then after the first two things or something, it's basically all the same. Does that make any sense? You don't need to. It doesn't need to be that complex for an uncomplex airplane. Yeah, that seems sensical. We have, you know, a lot of emergency checklists, and we've got a very thick. Well, I have one over here. I can't reach it from here, but it's, you know, it's two inches thick, inch and a half thick, and it's called a QRH, a Quick Reference Handbook. And in the front of that are all the memory items that I have to learn when I do a checkride. But believe it or not, I can't spout off all of them. I can be close right now, but I can't spout off all of them verbatim, which is what you would want if you were using it to save your life. Correct. Yeah. So if I can't do that right now, uh, the fact that I'm going to do it in duress is probably not the probability of me doing it under duress correctly is probably not very high. So I would say take as much of that human error possibility out of the equation and maybe do have the first thing you're going to do under 90% of all emergencies, have that ironclad and then consult a checklist would be my opinion. On you haven't flown in like 12 weeks though, have you? Yeah, you're, no, I you, flew. You're not really even a pilot I'm, anymore, Lee. That's how it feels. That's flown, how it feels. No, how, I've flown more than you, did you recently. Eight, I flew last how weekend. How did you get eight months of maternity leave? Is what everybody wants to know. As a pilot, I did not get eight months. I did not get eight months. I work for an awesome operator. <laughs> I wish I could name drop them right here because they're awesome and hiring. But um, through all this, they're still hiring even through all this. They, they are hiring. Really. They do, are do excited you, as they think, can be because right now, hold on. Job? No. <laughs> no. Anyways, they are excited about all of this because every, all the, you know, maybe marginal operators that suck, have terrible work rules and just use and abuse people. That has been what's limiting the growth at the company I work for. They, they, they've been limiting the clients they can take on, the aircraft they can buy, because we don't have the pilots, the air the airlines have been eating up pilots, qualified candidates. Yeah, so the much. airlines don't they ain't flying for shit right now. No. I mean. All right, welcome back. You're listening right after we cut back in, uh, but in reality, this is like two weeks later. Uh, we had some adult beverages, and. Uh, we went for like two, three hours. We forgot what we were even talking about. So we ended the episode around 11 o'clock cause none of us can stay up past 11 anymore. Uh, we're past our prime. Um, so Lee and I are now recording past nine o'clock and past nine o'clock on a Thursday night means Scott can't be with us cause he has sand in his nether regions. And, um, so Lee and I are going to try to wrap this up within like 10 minutes here. We'll see how it goes. 
Um, we're going to start off with C. Uh, we may or may not have covered this already. We don't remember, uh, as I said, <laughs> due to the adult beverages. Uh, part C, each emergency cockpit checklist procedure required by paragraph B7 of this section must contain the following procedures as appropriate. One, emergency operation of fuel, hydraulic, electrical, and mechanical systems. Uh, two, emergency operation of instruments and controls. Uh, three, engine and operative procedures. And four, any other procedures necessary for safety. Mr. Griffin. I believe we. I I, it, I listened to the recording. I think we covered that already. Uh, m- maybe. I mean, you're. I mean, since you re-listened to it, uh, I don't recall having covered it. But uh, I mean, it, it again, was a couple weeks ago when I re-listened to it. Well, but it was a couple uh, weeks ago when I was drunk. So yeah. So we're gonna roll. Do you have Do you have anything you need to get out to the world um, about that section? I mean, so yeah. I mean, I guess. Um, no, not really. I think this is – re- understand it the way it reads, emergency operation of all these different things. If you look at 91503, which is what we're covering, you need – I mean, you need to have a checklist that addresses all these things. And so this is – this section uh, – remind, remind me, this is large turbojet or turbine-powered aircraft in this section or this part? Yes, this is subpart F. So of 91, it, large and turbine-powered multi-engine airplanes yes. and fractional ownership program aircraft. Yes. Okay. So large meaning more than 12,500 pounds gross takeoff weight. Turbine-powered, of course, meaning turbine-powered. So that could be a turbine. could be, you know, turboprop, turbojet, whatever. We need to have these things. They're saying basically these airplanes are so complex. Don't commit this stuff to memory. You need to have it. The manufacturer needs a supply checklist for it. So, you know, there's certain, uh, some people want to have a ton of systems knowledge and know a ton about the airplane and good for them. Um, I don't have that kind of bandwidth in my brain. So I want a checklist that'll tell me what to do, not go from memory, pull this breaker, flip this switch, do this, do that. I don't want to do that. Okay. Let something come up on the indication and be like, oh, uh, uh, left reser- reverser unsafe. Go to the checklist in the book called a QRH quick reference handbook is typically where these emergency checklists are, which is what we're covering in this uh, part C. Um, and it literally you will find left, left slash right or whatever reverser unsafe. You go to that, you do what it says. And that is as safe as you can possibly be. And I'm sure at the very, very end, it'll say land as soon as practicable. <laughs> do that and I don't want to basically they're saying here they're complex enough don't commit stuff to memory commit what you can but don't rely on it you need to have a checklist for it the manufacturing you make a checklist for it what do you got what do you think no that's good it's the emergency stuff I think we mentioned before it, it's it's more of a you remember the first couple things and then you, you go to the checklist um, well yeah I mean that's what I would say to a student you know learning to fly but I mean really when you get this complex, you have three hydraulic systems. Um, maybe just nothing happens in 0.3 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why go flipping a switch or doing something that, oh, I'm sorry. That was for if there's a hydraulic system one failure, not a hydraulic system three failure. You know? Yeah. So you're just saying grab the, don't even worry about memorizing any, grab the checklist. 
Well, I guess that's what I would. That's how I'd want everybody to be. Basically, if I can't fix it from the flight deck or the cockpit, why do I need to know it? Why do I need to remember it? So I don't. I don't disagree with that. But when you're grabbing the checklist, I feel like you should be familiar with the checklist that you're grabbing already. Like it shouldn't be the first this, time you've gone through it. This is inches thick. This is not a front and back eight and a half by eleven. This is an inches thick with hundreds of procedures. So are there procedures like you're talking like airline pilot level, let's say? I am yeah, I mean I'm part, talking about part one twenty one. Part one twenty one, part one thirty five. You're flying for a legacy air carrier, big yep. Boeing jets. Yep. You're not you're not at some point going through all of the checklists first. You do, but you can't remember all that. You can't remember no, no, all that. I'm not that. saying you're remembering it, but you are going through it. Like if if there is an emergency and you grab that checklist, it's not the first time you're seeing that checklist, right? It is possibly the first time you've seen that checklist. Really? Well, you're looking when you think of checklist, you're thinking of checklists has a connotation with it that it's there should be an element of familiarity. I would say a procedure. I would I would I guess I would take the wording in this here in what is commonplace today with somebody going through training right now and they're going to build up and they want to eventually be an airline pilot or whatever. They they I would try and change where this says emergency cockpit checklist well, it says checklist procedure actually required by paragraph B7. So it is a check. It is, I would, the, the again, checklist has a connotation that you have exposure to it already. And yes, you have exposure to this book called the QRH, the quick reference handbook. You have a ton of exposure to that, but you are flipping through, a, flipping to a lot of the same procedures over and over and over again. V1 cuts, which, which are an engine failure decision speed. Um, in-flight fires, engine fires, uh, smoke, fire, fumes, uh, rapid uh, descent or emergency descent, things like that. You are hitting those a lot, the big ones. But, you know, some of the more minute ones, something pops up on the screen. Uh, it might be something totally new to you that you haven't covered before. It may be more minor. You know, you, co you cover the big ones in training. But then something more minor, you still need to look it up, but you didn't cover it in training. Okay. I mean, I guess does that kind of does that kind of answer your question? You've obviously had exposure, a ton of exposure to the book. Yeah. And this is a spiral bound book. Um called a QRH, quick reference handbook. And in there are what a, we, so some of the procedures you're talking about, we do have to memorize verbatim, and those are called immediate action items or memory items. Immediate action items. So Mary Couriers actually have an eight and a half by eleven double-sided, laminated, called an immediate action checklist. And that's kind of, you know, with some of the other, um, you know, ma manuals or whatever for the airplane right there, very accessible, so you don't have to remember them. But there's some things, you know, I think in the airplane I'm flying now, I think we have maybe 12 immediate act or uh, memory items. They're a checklist that you need to know verbatim. Okay. So that would be a checklist more what you're talking about, but something obscure, you know, left or right reverse or unsafe, like I just talked about. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to fly the airplane first. That's always the number one rule, right? Fly the airplane. 
keep it under control as best you can. That's why we have two pilots. The pilot command, whether he's pilot flying or pilot monitoring, he needs to delegate the duties. He either needs to take over control of flying the airplane and delegate the duties of the pilot, the new pilot monitoring, if he wasn't already, delegate to them to get the book out, QRH, left reverse or unsafe, or reverse or unsafe. Yeah. And they'll flip it open and do this, do this, do this, and land as soon as practical, I'm sure, is the last item. I guess when you get into the aircraft that complex, which I've never been typed in or anything, it just gets so beyond being able to know the stuff that you have such you can have situations where there is a checklist on how to handle something there, that you just cannot even get to the point of covering even during all your training in the new in the newer aircraft if it will pop up on the screen there is a checklist for it if there is an item that can fail and pop up on the screen there will be a checklist for it yeah I know that's kind of I know that's kind of crazy because in the GA world, you know, you're flying a 172, whatever. You're you're looking at gauges and you have to kind of look at the gauge, interpret the gauge. Is that right? Is that wrong? And then do something with it. And here, if something goes outside and you know exceeds a limit, it will tell you, hey, left oil temp low <laughs> or uh, oil pressure low or something like that. <clears throat> something like that, and then you reference the checklist. It, I mean, it's it's a different world. It's a different way of operating, but it puts a little bit less on the pilot. Fly the airplane at all costs. Fly the airplane and delegate somebody to get to the checklist and what to do. And I'm sure eventually it will tell you to shut down that engine or reduce power, see if the message goes away, or reduce power, see if the oil pressure or oil temperature gets within limits, whatever the case may be. And if it doesn't, precautionary shutdown. And then guess what? There's a checklist that will say, reference this page, this tab, this page, precautionary engine shutdown. And then you go through that checklist. It is literally emergency handling by numbers is really what it is, which is good for stupid pilots like me. That's good. Perfect for me as well. Um, yeah, I don't want to remember. I don't want to remember anything because if I if it is left to me to remember, I'm going to forget. The, it's possible that I could forget something very important in the middle. Yeah, why would you want to take that chance? That's understandable. Uh, I think that's the FAA stance on it too. Yeah. Um, part D. Wrap this up real quick uh, so we can move on with our lives. Uh, part D, the equipment charts and data prescribed in this section shall be used by the pilot in command and other members of the flight crew when pertinent. Um, this just seems like a, like I, this whole sentence just seems useless to me. Like it's just common sense. The equipment charts and data prescribed in this section shall be used by the pilot in command and other members of the flight crew when pertinent. That just is telling you to do what you should be doing anyway. I feel like this is like you should take care of your kids. Like I don't feel like yeah. you need to have that written out. Like it's something you should just do, but they have it in here anyway. Yeah, I get I guess that's the way I would look at it too. So. I, I would totally I would totally agree with you. I would totally agree with you. It's funny though, it's interesting how much certain 
you know, most pilots are pretty type A personality, but it is funny how many of them feel like their rights are infringed upon when you tell them to follow the rules. Yeah. Just an observation. So, you know, if they think they have good enough systems knowledge that they can willy-nilly their way through a, hey, this happened to me before, and this is what the checklist said, so I'm just going to do what the checklist said this time, too. Maybe you forget something, maybe you don't. That type of thing. So I guess they're saying, hey, if the checklist is there, you need to use it. And this section says if you're flying that type of airplane, that checklist that checklist exists. Don't go by memory. Do what the manufacturer says. Yeah. Even like charts and like data you're getting, it's like that's just what a pilot does anyway. But they they spell it out in here and I'm, maybe there's some legal case that caused them to want to put that in there because somebody tried to get through some loophole and then they just put this in at the end just to close some loophole i don't know it just seems uh yeah well some somebody killed somebody killed some people probably and they had the checklist available to them and they thought that some lawyer thought that maybe it would kill less people if they said at the end hey use these you know what i mean so part d is basically like um i don't know it just seems to me it seems useless but i don't have a law degree so maybe there's some case maybe there's some case where that D would be pertinent, but who knows? The D is always pertinent. You need a Scott. Scott would have. Scott would have taken. Would have swung at that softball. You just lobbed up there. I'm. Not, I'm not going to take the swing. All right. I'm going to. Okay. All I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to keep okay. the bat up in the air and wait for the next one. You know. I'm letting. Keep the I'm bat up in that, the air, huh? You're not going to. I'm letting that one just go straight to the catcher. Um, okay. Uh, there's a lot of innuendos. Yeah, there's no, no, no. So many I, I, as soon as I said it, I knew that was lobbing another softball to you, and <laughs> just, I'm hoping it misses. Oh, misses man. the whole, whole first home base. <laughs> um, anyway, that wraps it up. Preferred uh, method of communication is email. Uh, my email is f a r a i m at robertberger.com b e r g e r is the german way not the sandwich way lee is f a r a i m at leegriffing.com g r i f f i n g and since scott was not here to uh finish up this episode because he could not manage to stay up past 910 and get on the uh, the software with us to record. You can email him at P-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com. B-O-R-E-S. That is Scott Boris's email address. Um, Lee and I would appreciate it if you would email Scott uh, after hearing this yeah. and ask him yes. uh, just how much sand is lodged up in his orifices. Um, what was another pertinent note? We want to start dropping... Uh, a podcast. Um, we all signed up for it. I can't remember what the name is right now. Good pods, good pods. Oh yeah, good this, pods. This is the first yeah. one. We haven't record. We haven't finished. I shouldn't say we haven't recorded an episode because we have recorded. We haven't finished an episode in two weeks, and we signed up a couple weeks ago. This is the first time I'm mentioning it, so we didn't remember it. Um, good pods. I believe it, it's definitely on the iPhone. I believe it's on the other devices. It's an interesting um, platform. Uh, podcast player 
Uh, I am at Rob. It's pretty new. So you can get the handles that are pretty basic. No one's grabbed them all up yet. So I'm, I'm just at Rob. Uh, you are at Lee, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. At Lee. Yeah. And then Scott, somebody had it at Scott. So, um, be sure to harass that person, whoever took that. Um, yeah. They're also the actual Scott Boris is just at Boris. So you can, you can message him on good pods at Boris, B-O-R-E-S, and ask him on that platform as well how much sand he actually has up in his orifices. Um, uh, but it's an interesting it's an interesting platform. We're playing around with it. Um, I'm going to be dropping it at the end of episodes until we find something else to drop um, to replace it. Uh, but you basically, you rate each episode. You can follow different people. You can see what they're listening to and rate what they rate it. Um, it's just interesting. Uh, we're playing yeah, around with it for now. Um, so if you're interested in trying out a new podcast player, send uh, check out Good Pods and uh, look us up. Looking at Rob, at Lee, and at Boris, B-O-R-E-S, um, is the three of us. And obviously, uh, far in podcast on that. Uh, that That is all I have to, uh, to sum it up. Uh, appreciate you guys listening. Um, take care. See ya. You flown Grumman's? You brought a long Grumman's? time ago, yeah. Oh. I don't even remember them. I don't remember the model. It was whatever the f- a four seater. Probably a, a Tiger or a Cheetah, maybe. Yeah, yeah those are the two four seaters. Familiar. Yeah. Pretty fast for for what they are. I don't recall. I was just so mad at the checklist that ruined the entire experience for me. Oh. <laughs> Have you been talking to airport tenants over at your? Uh, over your home base there, Scott? I, I have I have flown in some Grumman's before. Yeah. You are you a Grumman Grumman lover? I wouldn't say I'm a lover, but I remember flying some in a couple of a, couple, a few of them. And yeah. uh they were quite quite fast. I don't you know, like by a hundred hundred and thirty knots fast. It's crazy. Ah, well, we had a we had a pretty good tailwind, but no, no, no that's ground, ground speed. Then I don't care. I, I don't care. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't. I you know I don't really remember, but I remember our ground speed coming back from. We coming back from I don't know Mansfield or something. It was like uh-huh. it was like 180 knots. Uh huh. So southwest to northeast. Yeah. I mean, we we probably had a pretty good tailwind, but. Uh yeah, you think any Grumman does 180 knots with 180 well, horsepower? I'm, I'm just telling you, our, our ground speed was approaching 200 miles an hour. I'm I sure can the, do the math on Scott's. On I don't never seen that before. So it seemed fast. I don't remember the uh, what the winds were. Obviously, we had a tailwind. Obviously, but yeah, you had a 70 knot tailwind. <laughs> I don't know if it was 70 knots, but it was good. 
Dude, a Grumman Tiger does like 135 knots. That's it? Yes. Well, we had we had a pretty stiff tailwind then. I don't know what I else. T- I, yeah, I just said about 70. If you did if you did 180 knots, okay, so 50. You had a 50 knot tailwind. It might have been 170. It was 170, 180. I can't remember. But it was fast. Well, that's fine. Then you had a 45 to you had a 40 to 50 knot tailwind. Yeah. Which is reasonable. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. You seemed like you'd have to be up a higher altitude though, Scott. Yeah, well, I wasn't flying. Were you in space? Were you above 6,000 feet? Oxygen on. We might have been in space. We might have been in space. <laughs> space starts at 6,000 feet. Well, I mean, uh, did you do a nice thorough pre-flight with the uh, pilot flying on that? Yes. By did you? You, I'm, you mean we attached the tow bar, pulled it out of the hangar. And then took the tow bar off, hopefully. And then took the tow bar off. Ends. Took the tow bar okay, off. Okay, good. And it's we a, got in the, the airplane. Taking the and it started, which is most of the pre-flight is. Does it start? Done. Yeah, yeah. You weren't. You do the pre-flight on the way to the runway. Were you using a? No, I, I don't remember. I was in the back because we had we had four people. I was in the back. Oh God. Yeah. Why were you doing this? I don't know. I don't even want to know. I don't, I don't even know. I don't want to know. What's what's wrong? Okay, with, well that's cool. What's wrong with four people and a tiger? Social distancing. Too. Well, yeah, uh, that this was, too. This was probably like 2012 or earlier. Oh 2012. Oh God. Anyway, you, I'm sure you're going over gross weight, but who cares? Anyways, that doesn't matter. But yeah, I mean, yeah, how about 135 knots? 130, 135 knots, true yeah. airspeed. Anything above fastest, that? Is it the Tiger the fastest in class, or is it in the same class as the Mooney? No, Mooney is going to smoke a tiger. Oh, yeah, I figured. But For sure. Are they, so they're in the same, the same class, class the Mooney. Well, I don't know if they, I, w- I would not characterize them. It depends on how anybody's going to subjectively change that. They're going to be similar gross weights, similar. The Mooney's probably the, I don't know what the lowest gross weight on a Mooney is, probably 3,000 pounds, I would guess. It's a guess, total shot in the dark. But the slowest Mooney does like 150 knots. So, I mean, that's 15 knots difference. Yeah. On similar horsepower, so it's all it's all what you want out of. It. Now you're also cramped in the Mooney, where the, the Tiger's a fair bit more. You think it's got you more know, open? The There's morning? a little. Bit. Yeah, Mo- the closest Mooney that would be in that same that would be closest to being that same. Now I would say it's out of the category anyways because it's already retractable gear and constant speed prop. I would say that puts it out completely. A Tiger. Yeah. Being fixed gear and fixed pitch props, I would I would say that right there. You know, if you go by weight, complexity, different class, in my opinion. And if that is the case, it probably is the fastest in its class. But yeah. when you talk to Mo- when you talk jump to the Mooney, higher weight, tractable gear, constant speed prop, and it, but it's fifteen knots faster. If that matters to you for the complexity, maybe it does. I don't know, but um, yeah, I, w- I, w- I would not say the Mooney and the Tiger are in the same class. Probably if they not. are. The Mooney is faster. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not on the Tiger. I, th- I think that they are slippery, and in their class, as I would define their class to be, which I don't know if it's correct or not. I'm not AOPA or anything, but if I were to define the class, I would say they probably are the fastest in their class. But I just that doesn't mean I'm going to go buy one. No, just I just remember that. hearing that they were the fastest in class. Well, from, I've heard that from, yeah. the, from the owner anyway. But 
and they and they might and they might be, but if you want to broadly define class as a four play single, they're not. No. You know, it's going to be Columbia. I was going to be. Well, you know, I was going to say I was into yeah. Moonies until I discovered Columbia back in the day. And then I was a right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember you being in the Moonies. Well, I remember when you were in the Moonies. What's the What's the price difference between a Moonie and a Columbia? Well, Cessna owns Columbia now, right? Well, yeah, yeah but Moonies yeah. are have also gone up astronomically. I mean, you go get a Moonie, and I don't even know what the newest Moonie is. The Moonie uh, Claim S. Moonie like closed 200. down, though. They well, stopped maybe making. Maybe they them. did almost. Well, okay, okay. Like so I've been out of it for like a while. Yeah. Well, probably, but the last one I knew did 237 knots. That's fast. Very. That's, that's fast. true airspeed. That's very that's fast. That's true airspeed. You're well, not yeah, going to see that but... on an airspeed indicator. I just no. want to clarify that for everybody out there. There's but that's, big... that's fast for a single-engine piston airplane. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. It's very fast. Very fast. But that's true airspeed. That's not what you're going to see on an airspeed indicator. Yeah. Ground speed, you can probably see 400 knots out of one of those things. But that's ground speed. The most you're ever going to see on that airspeed indicator is probably 180 knots in the airspeed indicator. I don't know. I've never flown one, but probably. You got to get up to altitude, get the air nice and thin, get cruising. That doesn't mean that's the ground speed you're going to get if you're fighting the wind. But still crazy, 237 knots. Wow. That's fast. But you got to spend seven hundred thousand dollars to do it. That point, I mean, you get a lot of airplane for that kind of money. Oh, you can get pressurized and yeah. Oh, six seats, eight seats, a lot of airplane for that. Yeah. 